0: The views expressed on this program are solely those of the speaker and do not reflect the views and opinions of Centennial Securities. Be reminded that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Happy Friday. Welcome to the Weekly Investment Podcast, where we discuss the week's must-know investment news and how it affects your money. I am your host, Walter. I am very excited for this week's interview. Our conversation is with Kyle Cisco, a real estate professional who over the last 10 years has served in several C-level positions at predominant real estate companies in West Michigan including Colliers International, where he served as the managing director for the state. At Colliers, he led his local team of roughly 40 people to be the Aon-ranked-highest-engaged team out of over 60 offices in the country. He also doubled the real estate portfolio to roughly 12 million square feet. Kyle has been involved in nearly every aspect of real estate, including investment, acquisitions, development, and portfolio management. Throughout his professional real estate career, Kyle has underwritten and led teams in acquisitions of over $200 million in assets, negotiated hundreds of leases for a total of over 8 million square feet, and secured financing of over $120 million. Kyle is also a serial entrepreneur, having founded over half a dozen successful companies, selling several of them. His latest endeavor we will be discussing later in the conversation. Let's crack right into the interview.
1: Hello, Kyle. How are you? Hello. Great. Thank you for being on the WIP. It is a pleasure to have you on the program.
2: Well, I appreciate that, and thank you, and wanted to give you a congratulations on your podcast
1: success in 2023. Thank you very much. It's because we have wonderful people like you that come on and want to be interviewed without folks like yourself that have really interesting industry knowledge, and you know, we, we maybe wouldn't have had the success. So it's all thanks to folks like you. Jumping right into what it is that you do from an investment point of view. In the past, an investment portfolio was stocks and bonds, and now we are seeing some investors take a little bit of different approach and look to supplement that vanilla stock bond portfolio with alternative investments or other areas of the investment world. And one of those areas is real estate, an area that you know very well. So if you would, please, could you talk about the real estate world that you operate in right now?
2: Yeah. And and I would agree, you know, coming up and investing in a variety of different uh, vehicles, including stocks and bonds and commodities and you know, real estate I think is an important piece that needs to be in in the portfolio, and and really with technology these days, it's easier and easier for uh, even the the non-professional real estate person to be getting into uh, investments at some capacity. So today, uh, I'm spending uh, most of my time working for a small family office, and, and in addition to some other projects that I've got going on on the side, which which I'm sure we'll touch on but really focused on a family office where I'm finding investment opportunities for them. And and we're uh, really uh, moving to a a national investment portfolio where I've really been focused on the Midwest or Michigan in the past. And so it's been really great to get uh, an idea and, and really that bigger macro picture as to what real estate looks like across the country and a variety of markets. So certainly have more of a grasp on on what the the big picture of commercial real estate looks like.
1: Let's talk about that a little bit more. So given that the scope of where you are sourcing these opportunities has increased, how are you finding those opportunities?
2: So we've got a couple of important avenues that will go down. Uh, First and foremost, you've got a a lot of great platforms out there, uh, both that are open to the public and that are a little bit more privatized where, Uh, you've got sellers and brokers listing these properties. And so basically setting up searches and those come direct to you as soon as they hit those platforms. Uh, Another avenue that's been really critical and has proven very successful for us is just building those relationships with the brokers in, in different markets across the country and regularly checking in and visiting them and spending time on their market so that they can educate and be a partner as to what's happening in their market in addition to uh, providing opportunities and, and bringing deals to us, often sometimes before they hit the market or or some of these opportunities will just be uh, sent out to a, a small group or even just us with permission of the seller, of course, and not even listed on a platform. The third option that drives a lot of traffic is a, a two-part beast. We've created a couple of websites that that pull and, and demand, uh have more of a pull versus a push factor of, of bringing opportunities in uh, for people that are looking to sell their building. And in addition to that, cold calling, working with some of the great technologies and platforms out there and identifying uh, investment opportunities that may, for example, be that somebody's owned for a couple of years and their debt is coming due and and we can track that and see when when their debt's coming due and and knowing where interest rates are today and knowing the year that they bought it that that a lot of property owners are going to be in a tough spot as their debt is maturing here with these interest rates uh, at a a more higher or standard level and so reaching out to them and and trying to help them out of a tough situation it can usually be a win-win or for example looking at properties that maybe have been owned for 30 years by some individual or, or somebody who uh, may be looking to get out of that and, and make a change in, in their life and in their, uh, where their trajectory is and, and give an opportunity for us to, to come in and, and capitalize on on that transition in their life.
1: Moving along that line of thought there, when an opportunity is identified and you are ready to make an offer on that property, my sense is that there are probably a couple ways to to finance. The opportunity one of course, you could make a straight cash offer uh, now, most people when it comes to purchasing real estate they're probably borrowing some money or leveraging the purchase. How important is leveraged investing for the type of real estate deals that you do
2: a, a lot of times with with family offices you, you can uh, capitalize on an opportunity to buy cash and sometimes we'll buy a deal cash and we'll finance it afterwards just to to get to get the best deal. Uh, and close on that opportunity because sometimes there's a, a short uh, window that's needed. Um But certainly, uh, there's some pockets of price points out there where you're only getting cash buyers right now. There's a lot of money on the sidelines, and so it makes it hard these days for a leveraged buyer to be able to uh, to even get their foot in the door on deals. Uh, but with regard to, to leveraged investing, so we really look at commercial real estate with cap rates, uh CAP cap rates. and uh, a cap, a cap rate can for the average person, a, a cap rate can be looked at as a cash on cash return. So if I if I have an investment that's a, a 10% cap rate, and for for simplicity, let's say we're going to buy a $10 million investment with a 10% cap rate, I would expect that, that investment's investment is going to return a million dollars to me per year, and and that's going to be a 10% cash on cash return. Now the benefit of Investing in real estate, commercial real estate, you've got appreciation and and dividends or distributions similar to you'd have in in the stocks. And real estate tends to uh, fluctuate from a price and value standpoint with interest rates similar to to how stocks do. But the benefit with real estate is you really can you can leverage, as you said. And if a if an investment opportunity is a six, seven, eight percent cash on cash return. You may find that your internal rate of return or your leverage to return may end up being in the upper teens or low to mid-20s, and, and that's not rare to see. So you can two, three, four, four 4X, 5X or more your investment and your return uh, by leveraging because you're getting the benefit of the cash on cash return but also continuing to pay your debt down, and you can buy more investments
1: you mentioned cap rates or capitalization rates there. And essentially that being the income uh, property generates relative to its value. How is commercial real estate valued? Do you look at the value of the physical property? Is it the cap rate that's most important? I guess from a valuation standpoint, when you're assessing an opportunity, what are the metrics that you look at?
2: The answer to that. Walter it's really going to vary based on the product type you're looking at. Our group per se, and, and where I've really spent a lot of my career, has been on the multifamily and the and industrial. And for example, you may get sticking with the industrial end of things. You 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 have you could have an industrial building that's got multi tenants, or you could have an industrial building, which is a big part of what we look at, which which may be an absolute net lease and you're investing in a a long-term credit tenant or or great tenant. So to answer your question, uh, the the cap rate could vary quite a bit based on uh, what that tenant looks like and and the quality of that tenant. So not only are you investing primarily with industrial uh, or maybe with absolute net leases per se, not only are you investing in that asset, in that that hard asset, uh, but you'd also be investing in that tenant and that lease, you're, you're really investing in that long term lease. And you can see, uh, cap rates depending on what that tenant, who that tenant is, vary significantly. Uh, as, as another example in, in the retail world, uh, you know, you may get a, a single tenant building that has a Starbucks or a Chick fil A in it, and you may see cap rates down in the, I've seen cap rates down in the, the fours or, or right around 4%. So you've got investors coming in going, I feel so good about this tenant and who they are and, and their stability that I, I'm willing to plug money into this deal for only a 4% cash-on-cash cash return or, or capitalization rate.
1: Now, that's interesting. The quality of the tenant will make a big driver of the return that the investor is looking for. makes total sense, but really interesting to hear you talk it through. You had also mentioned a minute ago that interest rates – will have an effect on the real estate market. We've seen a big increase in interest rates over the last couple of years. How does interest rate affect cap rates and how does that change their rate of return?
2: Cap rates correlate with interest rate changes. I mean, it's it's really a function of the debt that buyers are able to get. Um because as you mentioned earlier, a lot of a lot of real estate buyers out there are leveraged buyers especially in the private uh, world. So they're, they're able to, uh, to get that debt. And if though, if that debt is costing them more money from an interest rate standpoint, then they're going to need a higher return on their investment. For example, if I'm looking at an 8% cap rate property, if I'm going to get debt that's at a 6% interest rate, I'm going to see a spread there between my debt and, and the return I'm going to get. Now let's say for, for some reason, interest rates went up to 10%. Well, that 8% return on that property, that cap rate of 8% is, is no longer looks good. I'm going that would be a negative leveraged investment where I'm paying higher on interest rates. So cap rates tend to fluctuate with interest rates and they tend to lag interest rates. It takes a little while for the market to adjust, especially in, in these volatile times because <laughs> sellers may say, oh, you know, I'm not willing to sell yet with interest rates going up. My value is going down. I'm going to to hold tight for a little while and see if interest rates change. And when they don't, it lags a little bit. When the interest rates start to stay where they are for a longer period, as we've seen in this last year with interest rates going up and kind of holding where they are, it took a good you know, four to eight months for us to start to see that change in the market from a cap rate standpoint. So a year ago, a year and a half ago, we were seeing a lot of industrial properties coming through in the six to seven caps pretty regularly, maybe even mid fives. And now we're seeing them pretty regularly coming up, uh, coming through in the seven to eight, rarely often nine caps at this point, depending on the tenant. Uh, from a multifamily standpoint, it was not rare a couple years ago, uh, maybe pre-2020 to see, or even shortly after, to see multifamily investments at a cap rate just over four percent, four to five percent, and now you're starting to see, uh, you're starting to see those cap rates move up. Not quite as much as some of the other uh, industry uh, segments, but even multi-family cap rates are starting to move up more into the fives. Uh, you can get a couple at the sixes. It really depends on the class uh, class that you're getting. And you know, another thing, Walter, that you're seeing a lot these days uh, on the investment deals is you've got you've got the asset of debt as well. So a seller. A seller may have financed, uh, got got some longer-term financing on on an investment at a lower interest rate several years ago, and now, now that's another asset to them. That debt is an asset to them because with interest rates higher, very similar to how bonds would work, with interest rates higher, now that that debt is worth more. And if if that investor negotiated with a bank or or a capital financing group. Uh, Whoever they they got the investment from, if they negotiated to be able to assign that debt on a sale, now all of a sudden that debt and that price, that asset becomes significantly higher uh, because of of the value of that debt that you can assign over to the buyer.
1: That's a really interesting industry insight. I was always thinking about it from a residential real estate point of view where someone locks in a low interest rate. It's actually an impediment to uh, you know moving and selling the house because well if they bought a new place they'd have to you know finance it at the existing or a much higher rate and there's no real way to transition that uh, locked in low mortgage rate to the the next uh, buyer and maybe you know price that asset accordingly but in the commercial real estate world at least in some cases. There's the ability to do that. I'm fascinated by that. That's, that's incredibly interesting. So online with interest rates, uh, clearly interest rates went up um, in a historically aggressive way. They've come down a little bit in the last few months and the anticipation from the market is that they will continue to trend lower. Clearly nobody has a crystal ball when it comes to interest rates. Could you kind of talk about generally, what are some of the trends in real estate at the moment?
2: From a, an interest rate standpoint, uh, we've really started to see interest rates uh, move up quite a bit uh, with uh, rate increases, and even more so, if you're getting financing from any kind of a local or regional bank, you're really starting to see a lot of these banks which are limited on the amount of loans they can give. These banks can, can only loan based on the deposits they have. And so because banks are struggling, some of these regional banks are struggling to get those and keep those deposits, they're limited on the amount of loans and the quantity of loans that they can give out. And so you, we've seen some tightening there in addition to just interest rates going up where some local or regional banks are saying, hey, I can only do so many loans. So even though I'm, my spread is going to be higher now because uh, the interest the rate I'm getting interest at and then loaning it to you, I'm going to bump it a little bit more uh because i can only do so many loans so you know i've got i've got only so much supply i can give out to the demand out there and so you you're seeing some of those banks starting to do that now interest rates and and where they're going to go i've got the privilege of having a relationship with you where we get to talk through those quite a bit and discuss different viewpoints i always have a pleasure doing that and i i, I don't know if i'm i'm in the boat of believing that that we're going to see two, three, four, five interest rate decreases next year. But as you said, nobody has that crystal ball, and, and time will tell.
1: What are your thoughts on office? There are a lot of people negative on office right now.
2: We've been talking about office for the last three, four years. We, we've seen not only from just the real estate cycle and environment, but certainly from the trend uh, that we've seen since since we had the work-from-home years ago, where you've seen a lot of companies move to that work-from-home Model and, and those you're seeing some companies start to push employees back to the office. There's still a lot of people are working from home. I work from home two days a week, Walter, and and I think there's a lot of people that do that. And I think that office is still going to take another hit. I still think there's more trouble coming for the office market. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about the fact that you've got the occupancy of a building. From a lease occupancy standpoint, for example, if we have a building that's got leases in place in the 80 to 90% range, uh, or even low 90s, which would be great these days, um, you, you've got a lease, you've got leases in place that show that you've got a leased occupancy of your building. But some of those tenants may have 50% of their employees working from home, and those tenants are strong enough still that they've got two, three, four, five years left on their lease, and they're continuing to pay, make that lease payment, even though they're only occupying half their space because some of their employees are working from home. So what's going to happen? Well, when those leases come due over the next several years, how many of those tenants are going to say, hey, I've been paying rent, and if you were looking at your occupancy from a, from a rent income, no bad debt standpoint and a lease occupancy standpoint, you may be missing the fact that when these tenants mature, they may be dramatically decreasing the amount of space that they need because their employee occupancy is down significantly. And so I, I think that's something that office owners and office investors need to really start to get their arms around and, and start to have conversations or get an understanding of their existing tenants. Or if you're looking at a building, get an understanding for what those tenants are doing from a physical occupancy standpoint so that you can correlate your likelihood or risk of that lease maturing or not
1: maturing uh, with a renewal. So along those lines, particularly thinking two, three years out when some of these office leases come due, what happens then? I have heard in some of the larger metropolitan downtowns that I, I frequent that Some people think those office spaces will eventually transition into residential and be repurposed, and there will be a return to living in a major metropolitan downtown area. How viable is that idea?
2: We've seen that happening quite a bit. The challenge with the office conversions is that the footprint of a building for residential is so critical. And with office, you might have a larger footprint where you've got a lot of offices on a floor and they don't all need windows and they don't all need utilities for their office. Um, so there, there's a, a significant difference between the needs of those utilities uh and those mechanical systems going through a building for office versus residential. And if you've got an office building that's got too big of a footprint or it's too deep, it's really hard to make that deal make economic sense to be able to fit the right amount of apartments in in that building so that those apartments are are maximized from an investment standpoint where for example if i have a two-bedroom apartment that's getting a couple thousand dollars a month and let's say it's 1500 square feet if we repurpose a building that doesn't allow me to get 1500 square foot two bedrooms, but I have to go to 1800 square foot two bedrooms that are maybe awkwardly shaped around columns or something in a building, I may not necessarily get, get that much more of a return on that rent. Uh, so it's, it's in a lot of scenarios, it's, it's really hard to, to make those, uh, opportunities work. And, and then you've still got, you know, nobody, again, nobody's got the crystal ball, but, Maybe people continue to come back to work more, and and so maybe we see more of an uptick in in the office market again just from those leases coming back. But I sure think that's going to take several years to see that kind of thing happening.
1: Let's touch on a couple more areas. I have the benefit of having clients all over the nation. It is clear to me that at least in the multifamily space, not all areas are created equal. What are you seeing as far as trends in the multifamily space across the country?
2: Well there's really two factors there. We've got rent and we've got occupancy. Occupancy first is going to be a a, really a function of that economy, that local economy and and how vibrant it is and and what the municipality and government is doing and, and what kind of employers are in the area. But it's also really important to look at the supply and to pay attention to how many units are under construction. As you know, the, the Sun Belt of, of the country became very popular the last several years. A lot of people, especially after people starting to work from home, you saw a lot of people start to move to these Sun Belt locations. And so you see an uptick there, and then as a response to that, you start to see a lot of construction start to take place. And that construction takes time, and so you've always got some lag between uh, metrics you need to look at. But when you've got a, a lot of supply coming on board in, in a market, sometimes it takes a while for that demand. You may not be able to hit it perfectly. And sometimes it takes a while for that demand to catch up to that supply, which can increase the vacancy in those markets. So we've started to see from a multifamily standpoint, we've started to see some of these Sunbelt communities and these Sunbelt states or these other markets that uh, you may have seen a, a big uptick in, you know, think of the Austin, Texas type markets, Phoenix type markets. You get these big upticks in construction and then it takes a lot for that demand to catch up. And that's not to say that those markets aren't still growing and some of those markets still don't have people moving there. But it may not be at the rate that, that those units came on board. And, and so you start to see some higher vacancy there. Part two of that is really thinking about the rent. And what's going to affect that is the cost of purchasing a house. If I'm an individual looking for a homestead, I'm going to either look to buy a house or I'm going to look to rent a house or rent an apartment. And the more the cost of housing goes up, then you may see a trend of people moving more toward renting. And then as you see that trend move to renting, you may see rent rates go up because there's more demand, right? So we're back to the supply and demand. So as as people are looking to rent more, rates go up. Maybe as there's oversupply and more vacancy from a construction standpoint, rates may go down. But we've really seen a huge uptick in rates, especially in the home state of Michigan, uh, really becoming very popular in the last five to 10 years. One of the things I wanted to hit on, we talked about the, the debt coming due for investors, particularly in multifamily, and one of the other areas that, that I think is important is that you see a lot of these multifamily investments. And from an investor, you've got to be real aware of this. You see a lot of the multifamily investments that are out there these days are very speculative on the rent increases. So we just talked about those rent increases, which reminded me about this and wanted to kind of tie this in there. As rents increase and you see it going up three, four, five percent or more in a in a market, you'll see opportunities out there to invest in, a in, let's say, an apartment complex, and they'll price those with with the future speculative rent increases from a cash flow standpoint. And if you were one of the buyers on those over the last year or the last two years as rents were dramatically increasing and you made this plan of the speculative rent increases for the foreseeable future, uh, you may be in a tough spot right now as, as rates start to level off or come down um, so if you, if, from an investment standpoint, if you're out there looking at multifamily, you just want to be aware of, at least just be conscious of the fact that you've got to look at what are they including in that future cash flow projection from an investment standpoint? How speculative are they on those rent increases? Because that can make a dramatic effect on, on that perceived return.
1: And I wanted your opinion on specialty real estate. For our audience that's maybe not familiar, what is the specialty space and what kind of opportunity do you see there?
2: If you're in the real estate world, you 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 see these different specialty vehicles of investment, and, and self storage was a big one. I mean, if if you didn't see self storage being constructed in your market, and you know, it was, I know it's big in Michigan, big across the country. Just a lot of self storage. A lot in Florida. You've got municipalities in Florida now that have now cut off the ability of. People to be able to do more self storage um because there was so much of it constructed uh one of the newer ones coming coming through has been uh i o s or or uh industrial outdoor storage so when you drive down the road and and you see you know a big piece of vacant land or gravel parking lot with a bunch of heavy equipment or amazon trucks or whatever it may be parked there. That's your industrial outdoor storage. And, and that's really, we've started to see quite an uptick in that, uh, over the last uh, year or so. And, and, uh, a lot of people, a lot of investors are out there finding this land from random people, getting a great deal on this land, turning it to an industrial outdoor storage and really capitalizing on some great margins. Um, so, so we're seeing, we're seeing those kinds of things.
1: Finally, what are the benefits to investing in real estate?
2: That's what it's all about and we talked a little bit at the beginning about appreciation you may not always have appreciation i don't like to buy for appreciation but you've always probably heard the old adage that you get your return on investment when you buy it so i look more at uh can i get a good deal can i find a good opportunity on investment i don't want to i don't want to depend on the appreciation of that investment does it make a good cash flow uh, we talked about leveraged investing, which is is critical and, and can help you make good returns. But one of the really important things that we didn't hit on in the beginning of the call, but want to make sure I call out there, is huge benefit to real estate is depreciation. So one of the one of the great tax advantages in in the IRS code is that you get to depreciate investments uh, in real estate or in physical assets as a business. And we've got this thing in the real estate world called cost segregation studies. And with bonus depreciation or section 179 type depreciation out there, you can do a cost segregation study on an investment right when you buy that investment and you can split that asset up, asset up, up into several different categories from, uh, you know, leasehold improvements to electrical to plumbing to different categories that are lower useful lives. Than than the asset itself, than the building, maybe commercial real estate is is typically a 39 year depreciation life, which in itself is not that great. But if you can do a cost segregation study and get 30, 40 percent of your building to be at a significantly lower five, seven, ten, twelve year depreciation life, and then you add the fact that when you get in those depreciation lives and those categories, you can capitalize on bonus depreciation. All of a sudden, you may, you may be able to get, it's not rare for us to see 30% of your investment in year one written down as a depreciation expense. And if you're a real estate professional, you've got the opportunity to capitalize on passive loss. You can really get some tax strategy benefits and depreciation benefits going with passive losses and depreciation. And so, definitely something for anybody who's investing in real estate to be having conversations with, with their professional team, uh, CPA, uh, about cost segregation and, and, considering it. There's a lot of really great cost segregation, uh, companies out there that you can do a cost seg for four or five grand, six grand or less and, and really save a lot of money on, on your taxes. I mean, if we, if you can save 30%, let's say an average rate of 30% on, on your taxes, that's more money you get to invest for the future and you get to start making more return on that money now. We all go back to the time value of money, and and it doesn't get much better than that.
1: So I think that point is an excellent place to, dare I say, detach from the commercial real estate conversation, (laughs) or at least that portion of it. Let's come back on the other side of the break and talk a little bit more about your other project,
0: which is Detach. Join us next week, where we drop part two of our conversation with Kyle Sisko, where we discuss his latest endeavor detach. If you have an interest in improving your mental health, you will not want to miss this conversation. Join us next Friday for that and much, much more. Thank you for listening, and please have a nice weekend
1: when you get there. Talk to you next week.